0: Okay, I'm recording. Are you?
1: I'm drinking. Yes, I'm ready. Recording.
0: Nice. Okay, let's get started. I have not brought any drink, which is rather unfortunate, soft or otherwise. Hmm, let's see how the voice holds out. Mm. Okay, Welcome everyone. Uh, This is episode 26 of Tokyo Jazz Joints podcast. Try that again. This is episode 26 of Tokyo Jazz Joints podcast. That's better. Um, This is the second of a three-parter of which we have had a few now. uh, And this time we're in Kansai. So you'll have probably heard our previous episode in Kansai where we visited Jam Jam Goodman. Top rank in Bird 56. Uh, Today we're back in Kansai and uh, skipping between kyoto and osaka no we're not we're just in kyoto
1: we're just in kyoto
0: clearly the preparation has been um of a very high quality for this week's episode
1: (laughs) oh listeners have no idea about that well keep that for the outtakes episode but uh yeah how you doing philip good to chat with you
0: i'm okay i started a phd this week so that was quite a big thing wow it's in photography Um, Unfortunately, I can't just copy and paste Tokyo Jazz joints over, so I've had to think of something else to do. Um, I'm also uh, recording on some new audio equipment, um, as recommended by our sound man, Brian. Uh, Fingers crossed we won't talk for the next 30 minutes and then discover that uh, we've only got your side of the conversation. As exciting, obviously, and thrilling as that would be, and in in many ways sufficient for many listeners. Certainly been
1: asked for by some listeners, but uh, (laughs) yes, sounds exciting. A a new PhD, a new mic. Um, You're certainly getting a lot more done than my week here. I think the most exciting thing I did was buy a new leather jacket. So um, stand by for some uh, some new fashion uh, uploads to the social media feed. As the weather gets you didn't cooler. buy a yellow
0: you didn't buy a yellow sports car to go with it did you know because I'm <laughs> conscious of your age I mean it could be a, it could be an early symptom of onset uh, early onset uh, midlife crisis. Or would, is that really passed? already past? You've already had that, haven't you?
1: That wouldn't match the blue shoulder bags. So we've got to stay color True. Colors True. consistent here. Um, so we are going to Kyoto today. Um, I, uh, having prepared for this episode extensively, am very excited, Philip. Um, what's nice. one, one interesting thing about this episode is none of these places were visited uh, by us together. And I'm not sure why that's the case. Probably because, as I think I mentioned on the, on Kansai Part One a few episodes ago, um, for a five good five or six years, um, I was going down to the Kansai region about three or four times a year, um, both for family visits and for work. So when I was making these trips, I was always, you know, making some time to slip away. Um, and do some jazz research, you know. Um, so the places that we're going to talk about today, I've been to um, three of them, um, although this was all several years ago. And and you, I think, also were down in contact a couple times for your job and then a couple times on vacation, um, even before we had started this project. So we certainly got to these places in very different ways. Um, now, the first one is one that I have not been to, so I'm interested to ask you some questions, and it's called Hanaya, which I believe can be translated as the flower shop. Uh, what do you remember about Hanaya in Kyoto?
0: Well, I think this was on a trip uh, just before I left Japan with a friend, uh, Tom, who's been name-checked many times in the podcast. Um, and I think my thinking was probably, obviously, with my departure from Japan sort of imminent, um, I was conscious maybe that we hadn't covered the kind of Osaka-Kyoto area, which I suppose is probably the biggest sort of metropolitan area. Um, outside Tokyo and Yokohama. So it was probably um, a gap in the project in terms of the photographs and the coverage that we have. Um, And obviously there's a few very notable joints, some of which we've already discussed uh, in the first episode. So this was kind of a two or three night journey, I think down to this region of Kansai uh, with a particular focus on Osaka and Kyoto. And Hanaya was just somewhere I'd picked off the map Uh, Didn't know much about it. Um, And I think we went there fairly early evening. It was either after we'd just eaten or we went there and then went to net uh, afterwards. And uh, what to say about it? I mean, very nice place. Uh, Again, from the outside, you can see it's got very much that look of the ground floor of a house. Um, And, you know, for anybody who doesn't uh, know Kyoto or hasn't been, it's quite it's deceptively large, isn't it? Like you, mm. it, it's quite well laid out and you find yourself walking kind of a lot longer than you perhaps expect uh, when you first set out. And uh, we wondered... Well, w- Hana,
1: wonder, Hanaya is, is actually a renovated um, what they call machiya in Japanese. And those are the old sort of Houses you find in Kyoto that are a bit narrow uh, because in the the old days, um, houses were taxed by the width of the entrance for some long forgotten reason. And so people would build these very narrow entrances and and the houses would be very long, like almost railroad car shaped, as you'd say in New York, like the old New York apartments were. Um, So I was reading on the website that Hania is actually a renovated one. I mean, you got a picture of the front of it where it looks like a very modern um, building uh, so obviously they yeah. re- they redid the entire you know entrance area but but it is a refurbished uh, macho which is quite interesting.
0: Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I hadn't realized that actually from uh from just from the outside cuz like you say it looks it looks fairly new. Um but clearly, you know, even from the outside it's got that kind of um Kyoto sort of vibe to it, hasn't it? So mm. yeah, I mean, this was a really nice place. It was run by a husband, very much the the husband has retired, uh needed something to do uh, and opened up this place. You know, obviously big jazz fan. Um, and his wife was helping him run it with it. Lovely couple. Uh, they actually serve food, like quite nice food, um, and obviously beautiful cocktails and, and drinks as well. And uh, you can see from one of the photos their massive record collection, uh, nice audio setup. And I think one of the things that really stood out for me was this little wooden kind of shrine. Um, it's not clear whether it's a shrine to, to sound, to JBL. It It is topped with a little JBL clock there. But just mm-hmm. beside the speaker, it, it has a very, again, sort of kind of pseudo-religious vibe to it. Um, and uh, it's got some sort of little um, ornaments. Oh, no, I think they're miniatures, are they? Actually, it's quite hard to tell. Now, they look to me like little animals, but... Then on the far right, it looks like they're they're little miniatures as well. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, it was a really beautiful place. Very slick, very clean, um, you know, had that wooden, almost like Japanese house Mm. feel to it. Um, And we went there for an hour, had a drink, uh, very pleasant chat with the guy. And it seemed like quite an active place as well. You know, he has listening events. Um, I think gigs as well. I think he's so certainly very tied much... in.
1: Uh, he's tied in with the JBL um, whole scene because when I was looking it up online, there were a couple different articles in some of the audio magazines, um, including okay. one of the features where specifically the theme of the of the uh, of that edition was where can you listen to JBL speakers in Japan? So um, as we've mentioned, uh, people who are audiophiles here are very, very serious about it. There are multiple magazines devoted to um, just yeah. the whole world of audio. And so this was one of their special uh, editions where people who particularly fancied JBL speakers, you know, you could go and they weren't all jazz cafes either, although a lot of them were in there. But um, yeah, I would think he's, he's very much sort of tied into that scene as an audiophile. Um, and it looks like, yeah it looks like the care that they took to put it together because it says the place was only opened in 2005 Um, so you know obviously a lot newer than than the joints that we usually visit and um, I don't know if you had a chance to really um, spend time asking him about his record collection but in this magazine it's really interesting because it says the translation is basically um, goes like this in from Japanese to English um, and on to one of the most important matters How does he arrange his record collection of 5,000 albums? And the master said, they are arranged alphabetically. So every time they write these articles, they'll always feature not just the speakers, but Mm. how the master puts his records together, which is something that, I mean, as a complete geek myself, I always get into. Although I do not put mine together alphabetically. I find that very offensive, personally.
0: Well, it was a pretty big place, um, a pretty busy place rather. You know, I remember us not being the easiest place to photograph in as I'm looking at the photographs now. Um, You know, even at that time of the evening, there was a fair few customers in there eating and drinking, which obviously makes it um, a little harder to get around uh, and get the shots that you want. I've just zoomed in on the photograph of the little sort of shrine type place. wooden box it's actually a combination of cats which uh, and miniatures and cats seem to be a thing actually because there's a couple on top of the speaker and then I notice there's one reflected in the piano as well so um, again a bit puts me in mind slightly perhaps of samurai and uh, you do often find in in a lot of the joints this kind of um, these other obsessions that owners have sort of reflected in the decor and and the stuff that's sitting around.
1: Beautiful spot. And, you know, it's funny because um, in Kyoto, I think that there were a lot of places that sort of fit the mold of um, the really old f- dating from the 50s and 60s type Kisaten. But by the time that i had started going down there quite a lot, unfortunately, maybe, I mean, most of them had shut down. And so yeah. a couple of the places, um, including another one we're going to look at tonight, sort of um, fit this mold. As, as you mentioned, the, the guy that retires maybe has a space in his house or he, you know, rents a new space somewhere um, to to sort of commence his dream of owning a jazz key-set-in. um Yeah. It, that leads us to the second place, which is called Muda, Jazz Café Mura, which is a bit farther north Um, Along the river in Kyoto and for any of our listeners who's not been to the lovely city of Kyoto It's very very different from almost everywhere else in Japan for many reasons Um, Of course, it was the ancient capital. it was the cultural capital Um, even today. It maintains a very lofty place uh, Among Japanese people who are not from Kyoto tend to not like it there very much They like it for a visit, but they don't want to live there because it's very very insular I believe the Japanese expression is you need to be six generations uh, in the city before you can be considered a local that's a lot of time actually six generations Hmm. um it's also laid out very, very differently. It's it's in a grid pattern. Uh, the river bisects it north to south, um, and the streets are all in a grid pattern. It's modeled after the ancient Chinese city of Xi'an. So as opposed to all the higgledy-piggledy type places that we've described where you wander around alleyway after alleyway looking for stuff, um, actually, Kyoto is very easy to find things. You just have to check the address and cross-check it on your map. Um, so the Yeah, next and I place, think also,
0: hmm, I think like... Um, it's also, I suppose, one of those places, I mean, it even in the time that I was there, it, it increasingly just became thronged with tourists. And, mm. um, you know, when you go to the more popular sites like the Golden Temple, for example, you know, it, it's really just impossible to get any sort of moment to yourself to really enjoy it. It's just queues of people. Uh, and tour right full the of right at moment, though, Phil. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd say probably <laughs> those sixth-generation families are quite happy at the moment, possibly, because they've got a bit of peace and quiet. But it, it's a strange city, too, because, you yeah. know, famously, they have this very modernist, um, very controversial station building and then when you go further out into the city you find I suppose what a lot of people would consider to be the quote unquote real Japan you know, the the kind of, the, the Japan of the karate kid, you know, the, the sort of the the sloping temple roofs and the bamboo groves and all that kind of thing but it is a real contradiction of, of uh, styles of the city and um, within that of course there are these beautiful jazz cafes as of course we've discovered in every town and every city mm-hmm. regardless of what it looks like and Mura was another really good example of that again tucked away in a you know residential area and uh, we wandered for a bit to find it on Google Maps and then of course you turn a corner and suddenly you happen upon this incredible place and for me like Mura, it'll be interesting to see what your experience of going in was because I very much had the sense that when I first came in we weren't particularly welcome Mm. Uh, we came in um, it was a sort of a fairly gruff uh, welcome you know uh, do you want to sit down right fine over there Um, and you can see from the portrait of the owner who looks a lot smilier now uh, in that photograph than he did when I first came in he has perhaps that slightly um, how would you say maybe sort of Tokyo nightlife look about him. He's got that shirt. <laughs> he's got the hair or the lack of hair. And he seems like the sort of guy perhaps you wouldn't want to cross. Mm. Um, and there was very much that feel when we first came in. Um, I eventually plucked up the courage to, to chat to him, I think once another couple of customers had left. Um, and of course, once I sat, went over to speak to him in, in the corner and chat to him about the project, I do remember very distinctly having this conversation. And he asked me, um, so you know, what are you doing? And I explained the project and then he said, well, how many places have you been to? And at this point I said, well, it's about over 120. And it was like someone had flicked a switch because suddenly his whole expression changed. He opened up, he loosened up uh, and he wanted to talk more and where have you been and, you know, Mm -hmm. what were your favourite places? Uh, And it resulted eventually in this portrait of him and, you know, from going in where I couldn't have imagined even asking to take his photograph to leaving and having had this uh, beautiful experience that afternoon, I was so delighted, not least of course, as well to capture this just incredible, incredible fish that he has in the tank. Uh, and that was the second generation, I believe. I think the original one that he had, had died. Um, and if you were really eagle eyed, you can actually scroll in, I think on the fish tank and there's, uh, I think the name of the fish is there, but um absolutely gorgeous place fantastic afternoon oh sorry actually you can see the original fish in the photograph uh, above the tank yeah, that was he's, the he's first got, iteration
1: he's got, a, he's got a portrait of it on top it yep, looks quite yep. similar to the current <laughs> fish though
0: very similar yeah it's hard to tell them apart really but oh uh.
1: It's an it's a absolutely gorgeous spot. And, I, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about what you're just saying, the reaction that you got in. And um, you were joking about it. But um, people who are in Japan or have been here recently would know that pre-COVID, um, the tourist numbers to Japan skyrocketed over the last 10 years. And they just went into another universe regarding Kyoto. I mean, Uh, millions and millions of people visiting Kyoto in all four seasons and um, it's resulted in quite a bit of tension because a lot of the locals um, the city is just not built infrastructure wise to handle this many people and so um, you know guys like this who run a a business you know um, now he's not in the most heavily touristy neighborhood but definitely there would have been people wandering by who came in probably couldn't speak the language maybe didn't understand what a jazz cafe is who knows Um, so I think the fact that you showed that you were there on a project and, and were doing really serious work would have gotten him to warm up a little bit. Um, you know, it's funny, what I remember most about Mura wasn't the fish for some reason, and I'm wondering if when I went there, and again, this would have been quite a few years ago. Um, now, I did not talk to him. I was there with my family And so I think if anything, we would have been in there for like half an hour at the most before the kids at that time when they were very small would have uh, would have been making a ruckus. Uh, But what stuck out to me were all those portraits that he has on the wall. Uh, you know, yeah. we often see pictures um, in, in a lot of jazz spots. And sometimes the owners themselves are photographers. Uh, of course, very famously in Chigusa, but also in Jazz Room Stick, our beloved stick in Shinjuku. He was also a photographer. Um, but in this place, I mean, these look like very professional photographs. And I have no idea whether he took them or not. But you can kind of see from what you capture how many of them there actually are. Um, including the you know the standard sort of large John Coltrane poster up on the wall. Um, so that really stuck out to me. And also that he put, um, you know, because the, the photo that you took of the sign outside I think was really interesting. You know, Jazz Cafe Murrow, jazz and blues, records, and live. But you can see that it's right underneath. I mean, it's in an apartment building. You know, there's somebody living like right above there. So h- yeah. how is he putting on live music at night? That always confused me. It's Unless astonishing, really, there, isn't it? Know?
0: Yeah and mm. it's funny because it's it's almost like one of those hall of mirrors because if you look if you look for example at the photograph of the table and uh, you can see the piano just to the left with the speakers and then just on the bottom right of that co- uh, sorry the bottom left of that column mm. you'll see a guy playing um the sax and in the background is also picture of the pictures <laughs> right. on the wall behind him yeah, and right. uh, they're all musicians that have played gigs there and yeah. I think it's really nice you know because we've seen obviously photographs of really famous musicians and then as you said the kind of stock mm. images that you get from different posters and stuff but the fact that he's kind of celebrating this Japanese connection with jazz all these local or, or Japanese musicians playing in this place is, is really nice uh, it's a really nice take and something perhaps we haven't seen quite as much because you know as, as you mentioned previously with Uh, when we interviewed Tony and Mike in particular, you know, often Japanese jazz takes a kind of a, um, it takes a sort of a step to the side when it comes to the jazz Mm, kisa, and it it tends to focus often on particularly American musicians, doesn't it?
1: Mm. No, that's 100% right. I mean, I can think only of a couple, maybe even not even a handful of places that regularly play Japanese jazz. Um, so the fact that he would have all of these people there playing live, but also putting the records on is really unique. And yeah, it's just, it's just another one of these, um, I, I hate to use the word standard because it sounds like I'm downplaying it, but standard sort of neighborhood jazz joints, the kind of place that if you're walking home, you would pop in, well, I'd probably pop in three or four times a week. Um, Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really exist anywhere else. I mean, what other country, as we've said so many times, would have a place in this kind of neighborhood, in this building, with that setup of the records and the live music I mean this is an yeah. only in Japan kind of place and I think it's something really nice about it that in the midst of you know old cultural and you know UNESCO Kyoto we can still find our down home jazz spots you know I mean Absolutely, that makes yeah. me really happy every time I was going there because after the third temple or shrine I just keep thinking about okay when can I get down to the
0: cafe and have a beer you know and, yeah. and
1: family was always like what's wrong with you don't you want to see this temple and I was like yeah you know they're kind of all the same
0: different and were, temple Yeah, Yeah, I mean, well, these are temples, aren't they? And we've talked about this kind of (laughs) religious connection. So I suppose in many ways it's similar. But, I mean, on top of all that as well, I mean, you can see from the picture where he's um, in the background there uh, paying some bills, you know, a fairly no-nonsense selection of drinks on the counter. So it's not even, you know... The atmosphere and the music and everything else you can go in there and get like a really nice mm. drink or even coffee you know freshly brewed freshly ground coffee as well so it 's just a total haven you know and um, if you're, if you're in that Kyoto area, definitely get down to Mura um, tell them we sent you, make sure you respect the fish
1: show the pictures and, uh, for you sure. should be fine <laughs> yeah well, speaking of coffee then um, so just a little bit down the river from Mura. Um, is uh, right where it comes together, and that's where a terminal station of Demachiyanagi is. So if you're going up into the countryside, the hills north of Kyoto, that's one of station that you'll um, you'll be at because you can take a lovely tram there. So right at that terminal station is a cafe called Lush Life. And, I mean, hmm, how would you describe Lush Life? I mean, it's very much a coffee place. It is definitely a coffee shop. It's not a bar. Uh, when is it that you first went there, Philip? I don't remember. Did I tell you about it or did you find that one on your own?
0: No, I, I don't know. I had this name in my head. Obviously, being a big train fan, it definitely resonated with me, too. And I think I went after Murrah. We went straight there. Hmm. It was kind of a, uh, a rainy season type day. Um, but to me, what it was more like was an izakaya. It felt like an izakaya. It even has this kind of kitcheny feel with the tiling um, behind the bar. And I remember when we were in there, it was mostly a handful of locals who clearly came in there every day for their coffee. Mm. Uh, we got plonked down at the end of the counter where we're looking up through the place, um, and yeah, it, it just was that kind of neighbourhood vibe. Everyone was like chatting to each other, you know, shouting up and down, uh, up and down the counter. And again, just very friendly, uh, gorgeous place. The owner and his wife were both there. Um, I suppose possibly maybe slightly younger actually than maybe the average uh, owners. I um,
1: think so, yes, I think so. But I mean, it's not a, it's not an excessively old place, but it has so much been around for I think 20 years or so. Um, yeah. I think they probably would have opened it when they were pretty young. Um, and they live very, very close by. Um, but when you when you had the chance to, when you asked him to take the picture, did you explain the project to him?
0: Yeah, we had a bit of a chat. We weren't in any hurry, so we were just sort of hanging out there. Um, he, you know, picked a few records. They're sort of weirdly, the records are kind of weirdly organized. It almost looks like a shop the way that they're, like a record shop the way yeah. that he's got them kind of organized. It, it, but, right. um Yeah, we, I asked him for a, um, a portrait, and uh, yeah, he said, well, w- where do you want to do it? So um, I suggest that we came outside and, uh, yeah, I got this lovely portrait. And I suppose it's quite different to a lot of the portraits because they tend to be in the place, hmm. um, you know, in situ. And it was a nice kind of change, I suppose, that he came out. He's a big biker as well, although perhaps those those particular bicycles don't necessarily indicate that. But you'll see even from his T-shirt. I do remember that being part of the discussion as well. Yes, They're quite yes. heavily into their cycling.
1: Yeah, the T-shirt. The, well, that makes sense because of that location there. You can basically cycle all the way up and down the river for, you know, 30 kilometers or so. Um, there's a great spot there for walking or, or riding your bike. The record photo that you took is is perfect because you've got on the left, Abdullah Ibrahim. And then after the monk picture, which looks like a framed picture, not album cover, you've got Randy Weston. Um, yeah. The other really unique thing about Lush Life is that they uh, promote um, a yearly gig at a Japanese shrine, a Shinto shrine, which is just um, a few minutes away from Lush Life. And two of the solo performers that they brought over were the incredible Randy Weston and and, uh, Abdullah Ibrahim. So uh, just imagine for a second, not only being in a small room, To see either of those guys uh, perform a solo piano concert, but you're in a Japanese Shinto shrine. I mean, the atmosphere is just remarkable. So, you know, we talked about, remember our friends up north in Guma, uh, of course, at Basie, that you know they would do a lot of promoting. The guy Ray Brown, bringing those jazz artists over to the sort of countryside locations back in the sixties and seventies. Well, these this uh, lovely couple, of Lush Life, they're do they're still doing that. They're bringing over the artists to, to play one gig over, well, two two nights. They do it uh, Saturday and Sunday at this shrine in Kyoto. Uh, where was this, it we
0: saw? Where was it we saw those photographs? Was that not? T- I thought felt like that was together though. I remember someone showing me photographs of abdullah ibrahim in a temple
1: oh no 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 no! that but that certainly wasn't with me maybe he was showing it to you there though because that was just abdullah ibrahim's been twice he was there about five years ago and then he came last year so it was someone it showed was me photographs ago, of it, it so
0: it must have been in lush life i totally blanked that out yeah. for some reason but and i haven't even been drinking but like i it's only come back to me as you mentioned that now but i have a very distinct memory of uh, seeing these photographs and thinking, "Wow!" and like you know, playing this gig in a Japanese temple, <laughs> I mean, it's just like how? Where do you even start? Insane. It's just unbelievable, uh, you know, uh,
1: just insane. And you know, it brings together everything that you know we've talked about—the sort of reverence for the music, this almost, this almost religious-like devotion to creating these cafes and bars. And then that's the most final expression of it, is to bring over one of their heroes and have them perform in an actual Shinto shrine. Just beautiful, beautiful place. Every time I'm in Kyoto, that's um, uh, one of my stops for sure. Like I mentioned, the lovely trolley that goes from the machinagi up to uh, a hot springs, so it's kind of um, it's kind of a ritual at this point. But yeah, if you're in Kyoto to do some touring around um, and you're listening to this podcast, you're definitely going to want to stop by the Lush Life. And I believe they're open not very late though. I think they close around seven. Um, don't trust the website hours because those are not accurate, like a lot of jazz joints. <laughs> I remember yeah. standing outside for a while thinking they were going to come back, and they didn't, and they never came back, even though the hours said they'd be open.
0: I wonder, actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think this might have been the second iteration of the place. And actually, if you look, because I think one thing that struck me about this was it had a very, we probably overused this word a little bit, but it had that kind of bohemian Shinjuku feel that we were talking about because it, it felt like a real magnet for just artistic people in the area and you can see even from the shop with the umbrellas you know there's a lot of magazines and books there uh, one of the uh, customers now i remember was a local painter as well so you can see this this painting on the wall as well and even just um you know some of the posters that they've clearly put together i mean it's that beautiful one of louis armstrong uh where it says lush life Uh, coffee and jazz shop uh, that they've clearly made themselves and then also if you zoom right in on that photograph with the umbrellas you can see actually um, there's a signed uh, thank you card from Randy Weston which says spiritual greetings blessings and love Uh, and next to that you can see of course the owner uh, in an earlier time Mm -hmm. Um, and below that it looks to me like the original Lush Life on the left
1: Well, Um, I'm just doing a little side research here. They have been at that location, uh, this current location since 1988. Okay, But there was a previous... uh, Well, actually, if you look at the Lush Life website under the history button, you're going to see a long history that goes back to the 60s. Obviously, very different owners with three different shop names. So the shop was moving Mm. around. The owners changed and the name changed. And there's some really vintage uh, Showa-era photography in here with some great fashion. So um, head to lushlife.kyoto and uh, look at the history. Even if you can't read Japanese, you can see the dates and the photos. Um, So that's quite interesting. So they took it over... 32 years ago. So it's, it's a good run, actually, at the new spot.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it is a great place. Um, again, you know, if I get back in the next couple of years, I'd say, and I'm down that area, that will definitely be one of the places that would be on my list. I feel like I could have spent a lot longer in it um, mm-hmm. that day. So uh, fabulous place. Which brings us to the final and perhaps the most famous place. Um, I was kind of surprised... Uh, to hear that Brian, who um, mixes our audio every week, had actually been here himself when he was in Japan. Really? And again, it's, yeah, and it's not one of the... So that was my reaction. Yeah, it's not one of the places <laughs> perhaps you'd expect yeah. um, people to have been or certainly one of the first places that you would end up going to if you were interested in this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is Yamatoya in Kyoto. So what, what, what do we make of that place? I mean, what, what always sticks out in my head before anything is this just... Awesomely avant-garde uh, sign that they have outside with these naked bodies strewn all over the piano. It's just fabulous. I absolutely adore it.
1: Yeah, and it's it's strange because the sign gives no indication of what the inside of the place mm. is going to be like. So you see that, and you think this is going to be some real hardcore avant-garde. Like basement joint, you know, thinking of like Akita no Mise in Tokyo, you know, Right, uh, yeah. part of the 60s avant-garde culture. But when you walk in, I mean, I think I put in my notes, um, which doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense in retrospect, but I said it looks a bit Miss Marple or Merchant Ivory England movie. <laughs>
0: That makes sense. I, when I, I, yeah. I so I was like, exactly, that's what it is. Yeah,
1: because yeah, I, I found my notes uh, from when I visited there, and that's what I had scribbled down, and I was wondering if I was reading it collect- correctly. But, um, I mean, yeah, it, it, it has a kind of like that, old parlor type feel mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. um, where you would I mean he's got the teacups as well you've got you know you've got a great photo of him um, in front of his collection of teacups and glasses but I mean we, you've got to talk about the record collection here I mean just look at that look how absolutely beautiful it's laid out with the wooden furniture um, the wallpaper I mean this is kind of more like a, yeah an old parlor listening room you could imagine him having one of those old wind up uh, turntables in the corner you know to play 78s on a little bit like what swing and shibuya is trying to do even though it just opened remember we talked yeah. about swing kind of getting this aesthetic but this is the real deal you know this is this is something that's been like this for ages
0: um for me you so, wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised if you'd gone in there and discovered all the records were classical yes to me it has yes, almost more right. that sort of vibe doesn't mm-hmm. it like a, yeah. a kind of a like you say parlor or like a listening lounge for mm. uh it, it's it's got a film set sort of whiff about the whole place but uh, it's very very much jazz right
1: Oh no, it's completely a jazz spot. I mean, he even well, he's been open since nineteen seventy. Um, but I I don't in my notes it's not clear. I I don't think I got a clear answer about whether he was the first owner or not. I would doubt it because I mean that's fifty years back. That would have made him really young. I think uh, when he it, it, when he would have opened it because he's not he doesn't look that old um did you have a chance to, to talk with them obviously you got I mean nobody was in there so you I guess you smoothed a bit not to take the pictures
0: yeah it was completely empty um it, it's funny when you approach it too because you can see from the exterior where you, there's just, the only indication is just but Yamato and then there's also mm. this just very classic Chinese restaurant sign outside and it's not what you're necessarily expecting you, you head off that main street down an alleyway. Uh, and then you're greeted by this beautiful avant-garde sign. You can see even down there, it just looks like a, a load of houses. Um, mm. And inside, there's just this treasure trove of of records and, and jazz culture. We did have a bit of a chat to him again. It was both him and his wife. Um, she, I think, either slipped off quietly or uh, sort of would have preferred not to being, um photographed. And in often in case that's, You know, a kind of a respect thing. I think sometimes uh, the owners' wives of these places often sort of say, oh, no, no, it's his thing. You know, he's the master and that kind of thing. But whatever the reason was, um, she wasn't in the photograph, but she was definitely there. And um, they were just getting ready for the day. Uh, Like you say, gorgeous place, um, beautiful sort of old sets of teacups there, glasses, sort of thing that you're terrified when you get served because you're just like, I know, (laughs) I know I'm going to probably smash something here. and get you know sent out in shame.
1: Or I'm but, gonna um, knock it over. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the one thing that always confused me about this place was this bright red, um, sort of veneer countertop that I thought just didn't quite sort of fit with the rest of the place. Mm, but um, mm. I can see maybe what they're going for with the the kind of the reds in the wallpaper. Uh, but uh, it, it's it seemed to me slightly incongruous. But it was an absolutely beautiful place. And I would say again, looking just at that shelving unit. Probably up there with one of the biggest collections that we've seen in terms of records, would you say?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I I uh, scribbled in my notes again, um, eight thousand plus, mm. based on just comparing to some of the other shops, you know. Yeah. Um. And and as we've mentioned, if he's got eight thousand in there, I mean, how many does he have in his house? You know, yeah, it's probably yeah. got a good couple, three, four thousand more in his house. So, you know, these these collections have been built over many years and um, it's just so amazing that they have not just the opportunity to open a shop, to put their collection in and share it with customers, but that they're not afraid to leave it there. You know, mm. I mean, I would be I think that that's. Honestly, one reason why uh, this kind of listening bar and jazz kisaten culture would not exist in places like the states or maybe in Britain or Ireland, because I think people would be afraid to put it in a place and then leave at night. That that it would be at risk of theft, for example. You mm-hmm. know, whereas it's very unlikely anybody's going to break into your shop anyway in Japan. They're certainly not going to walk away with eight thousand records. Um, a couple quick, uh, two more quick things about Yamatoya. One is. Um, They started a Twitter feed in 2014, I believe. And, uh, yeah, joined in March 2014, and their last tweet was May 17th, 2014. It's not because they're closed. I guess they just didn't like Twitter. They were uh, trying to to, uh, tweet in English for their foreign customers, and I guess it didn't go very well. But if you look at their website, there's a great spot, uh, a great button that says Foreign Language. So you'll get the business hours, of course, the audio system for all the audio files out there. The nearby sightseeing spots, and then a very kind message that says, "We are waiting for the day when people from all over the world come to Japan and enjoy jazz. Let's get through it." Um, that's just a great uh, greeting, especially for these days. You know, it's <laughs> come very to unusual, Japan isn't and enjoy it? jazz. Let's get through it. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's unusual. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd say they're not alone in in being someone who went on Twitter to see what all the fuss was about. Tweeted a couple of times and then thought, I don't really get it and came off it. So that probably doesn't surprise me. But I mean, particularly what you said about Kyoto, you know, in terms of the that perhaps more kind of insular mentality, I suppose. And, you know, again, that sort of weird um paradox between you know obviously wanting business and wanting economy local economy to thrive and yet you know not wanting places to be completely overrun with tourists um, mm-hmm. but but to be sort of thinking in those terms of, of you know uh, more international I suppose and inviting well, people th- well
1: think about it because this is uh, this is a good six and a half years ago right yeah and his his first tweet from March 2014 is I would like to introduce Kyoto and culture but I can't write and speak English but I tried to start Twitter in English so I mean that's so sweet <laughs> He's basically just saying to the world, they're like, "Okay, we know the tourists are coming," and and obviously in a few years, it, you know, it just went crazy. So you've got that introductory tweet, then you've got something about manga, the shop information, how to say thank you in the Kyoto area, okini, um, and then it just mm. and then the last one is just sorry, you can check only cash. We don't have credit card system, and that was the last tweet. So I think if we get by there, um, we're going to have to ask about that. Oh, he's also got a picture of the record collection. It says we have five thousand records. I. Really, I'm surprised by that. I had it as a lot more than that. Mm. Maybe, maybe that's just uh, maybe he's reduced it or whatever. But anyway, Yamato is one of those places, um, not quite as much as Basie. But anytime you mention jazz cafes um, in the Kansai area, that was the first one that came up. So I think that's why I went there so many years ago, because it was probably at the top of my list.
0: Yeah, I think it's definitely one one of the older places that we've been to, regardless of whether that owner is the original or not. I wish I could remember because we probably did have that discussion. It wouldn't Mm. surprise me, actually, if if he was the original owner. But um, Mm. anyway, um, uh, perhaps that's a mystery we can solve on our next visit, um, which again will definitely be included on the must go back to list. Uh, which seems to be getting larger by the week. So that's a concern.
1: Oh, can, so, I, can I give one more from his beautiful website? Please. <laughs> this please. one's in
0: Japanese. So
1: it's announcing the 50th anniversary, and it says, um, it says in Japanese, but it says, if you don't have swing, your life will be uninteresting.
0: Well, who could disagree with that, like? Oh,
1: man, that's just perfect, yeah. So 1970 opening March 3rd, yeah. Oh, man, I, I feel like hopping on the Shinkansen now and just going down to, well... Uh, yeah, tell me about <laughs> it, I wish, <laughs> I, I, wish today, I had the man. option. Shit. Yeah.
0: Well, look, listen, that's the second part of our three-part um, journey in Kansai. James, um, any other exciting news that you want to break on the podcast exciting news Um, no well look uh, if that's all you're going to give us that's fine Um, in the meantime uh, it just remains to say thanks for listening Uh, thanks to Brian as always for his audio assistance thanks to Louis Elastic for our theme music Uh, thanks to you for your likes your shares your enthusiastic and encouraging comments every week this is um, episode 26 which I don't think we would have got to had we not had the fantastic response from all over the world that we we've had for the project and uh, more recently for the podcast so thanks again for that
1: one more quick announcement yeah um actually speaking of great support i got a very nice email from deborah gordon who runs the village vanguard in new york she's of course the daughter of max and lorraine the original Uh, founders and owners of the club Um, I met with Deborah when I was in New York last year um, about a little project that she's working on Uh, obviously the Village Vanguard is the holy grail uh, of jazz clubs around the world and they have been really struggling they've had to let go some staff Um, they cannot uh, open fully for live gigs. Uh, they are doing Friday and Saturday night live shows with no customers and they are streaming them online um, in an attempt to just generate a little bit of income. You can imagine how much the rent is in that place in New York City these days. Um, so please, if you are at all a fan of jazz, which you must be listening to this podcast, um, check out the Village Vanguard's website. It's only $10. You get to see two sets of live music Friday and Saturday nights. East coast time. Um we really need to make sure that the Vanguard doesn't close. This is the most important jazz club in in jazz history and um it should be, you know, it should be a UNESCO World Heritage site as far as I'm concerned. So show your support head over there at only $10. Nice.
0: Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, if you're uh, bored this week, Even if you're not, get yourself on to www.tokyojazzjoints.com. There are over 130 joints on there. I've just added Nutty uh, in Tokyo as well, so if you want to go and have a look at that, nice little place that we'll probably cover on another episode. Again, if you don't follow us already on social media, we're at Tokyo Jazz Joints on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please hit us up, uh, like what we post, follow us, and share it with people that you think might be interested James, in the meantime, uh, you have a good week. You too. Take it easy, buddy.